my mother-in-law is the scariest thing I ever saw. Dressed up like a trailer park beauty queen. Happy, happy, happy hillbilly Halloween. Welcome everyone to the third annual Hillbilly Horror Story Halloween episode. We are joined, Tracy, by a lot of our friends and colleagues in the podcast world to make this a super long episode. Good. That makes me happy with my heart. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Several chilling stories to get your Halloween underway. Nice. All right. So we're going to get this thing kicked off by telling you about Ringstorf House in the San Francisco Bay Area of California. Sounds good. More specifically, it is in the marshlands of Mountain View. That's a town. I guess city. Oh, okay. Right there. So in, that's in the, the name area. of it is yes. Mountain View? Gotcha. Yeah. So this beautiful home is a combination of Gothic and Victorian style architecture. It was built in 1887 by Henry Ringstorff. Now, Henry was a German immigrant, and he came to this country with only $4 in his pocket. By the time he died in 1906... He had amassed a fortune by growing and shipping grain. Well, good for him. It's a true American uh, story of, you know, come over and work hard and and make your fortune. He was one of the founders of the city of Mountain View. They had six children between him and his wife that were were born and raised in that beautiful home of theirs. So they definitely put their effort into it. Well, good. Shortly after Henry's death, his grandson, Perry Askin came and he started living in the family house. Now, he was still a young boy at the time. Perry grew up to be a very successful Broadway star, and he moved out of the house once he got his career underway. But in 1945, he and his wife returned and moved back into the Rangstorf house. Dang, that must have been like some awesome memories there. Yeah, I would think so. Perry had several appearances with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, and then the family would throw these big lavish parties and everything when he wasn't performing with the orchestra. So mm-hmm. they really brought the house into... Um, uh, Party house. Yeah, I guess more or less. You know, it was back in they the time. They like to entertain, you know, yeah. Yeah, as far as entertainment-wise, that that was like the the place where everybody went. So you knew it was uh, the, the party house. Like I want a said. place like that. That would be cool. It would be cool. So they did this up until... Perry's death in 1961. So at the time that he died, the house was then acquired by Newhall Development Company. And then there, were, there were some decisions that had to be made. They had to decide whether they were going to demolish the house, refurbish it, or relocate it. This was debated on for nearly 20 years. Why would they relocate it? Why would you do that? Well, because the other option would be tearing it down, which some places will not allow you to do, depending on the whether it's on one of the historical lists or something like that. Yeah. Or it's just a situation where somebody might step in and say, "We don't want it torn down; we'd rather move it." And you know, it's not an it's not unusual. We've heard several stories where these uh, famous places have been relocated, and that's what ended up happening here. They relocated to Shoreline Park in Mountain View. I don't know how far away that is, but that's what they ended up doing with it. 
So one of the things that was not debated on, though, was the eerie sort of energy that was felt inside this house by almost everyone who entered. Several tenants and neighbors reported unexplainable manifestations, strange sounds of crying at late night, cold spots, and lights flashing on and off on the property. So there were several times over the years when the house was vacant. Now, during these times, passerbys would claim to see a young woman with long hair standing in the upstairs window just kind of staring out over at the marshland below. In the 1960s, Max and Mayata Crump, they moved into the house. Now, Max was the manager of the Newhall Land and Farming Company, which actually had owned it because that was part of the uh, Newhall development. And part of his pay was to be able to live into the house. Oh, well, that's nice. So he moved his family in there, and they would go on to live there for three years. This was not an uneventful three years, though. Shortly after moving in, they began to hear footsteps on the staircase. So after checking several times and finding absolutely nobody there, Crump decided he was going to buy some flypaper and put it on the steps. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if anybody was walking on the steps, the flypaper would stick to their shoes and... There would be some kind of disturbance of it anyway, and you could see the missing flypaper. Well, they still heard the footsteps, but the flypaper was undisturbed. So, whoever <laughs> was making the footsteps. They're on to his sneaky stuff. Right. Then the family would be awakened at the sound of a baby crying in the middle of the night. They would go out and find that their children were both asleep in their beds. They had two young boys. Mm-hmm. So they decided the next night that they were going to move the entire family into the same room. But they still heard the sound of the baby crying coming from different parts of the house. Oh, yeah. Then that would creep me out for sure. (laughs) Max Crump decided he was going to borrow a rifle from a friend. And this rifle had a special night vision scope on it. So he was going to use the scope. Basically, he didn't care about the rifle. He just wanted to use the scope. Yeah. See what he could see. Night after night, he set up waiting for something to appear. He never did see anything or anyone but the noises continued night in and night out. How annoying that he must have been so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> so they eliminated the possibility of it being an animal or an intruder. And then the Crumps said that they just came to accept the fact that there's something in the house that they just did not understand. Now they were okay with it, but their friends weren't necessarily as accepting as they were. One day, a couple of their friends stopped by. And the the crumps weren't home, unfortunately. So the husband was standing at the door, knocking. And the doorknob began to turn. Mm -hmm. His wife was looking through this big picture window that was right next to the door. And she could clearly see that there was no one inside the house. And nobody on that side of the door that could have been turning the doorknob. So they had held it out of there. (laughs) Eventually, the house would become vacant. They had to board it up and everything because Mm -hmm. uh, vagrants were getting there and causing all kinds of vandalism and stuff like that. There were several plans hatched on how to save it. The strangest one was by three young men who were convicted of the Chowchilla school bus kidnapping. What in the world? Well, (laughs) apparently they kidnapped a school bus and I guess all the, the kids on it and all that. And their plan was to use part of the ransom money to purchase and restore the mansion. How about that for weird? Yeah, that's a little bizarre. So I can think of several different ways to try to refurbish, but kidnapping a school bus. I mean, wouldn't they? Okay, yeah, but wouldn't they figure that out? Well, I don't think that they. I don't think that they thought 
they weren't planning on getting caught first of all. So then they didn't. They would realize that, or wouldn't realize that they had kidnapped, you know, a whole school bus. They would figure they just came up with the money with some other means or something. And but, then just all of a sudden, yeah. on a random day, <laughs> they just started redoing the whole thing. Well, I think they were just gonna like like a collaboration buy the house and then fix it up. Yeah. So who exactly is haunting the Ringsdorf house? Sylvia Brown, famous psychic and mostly well-known fraud, spent some time in the house. <laughs> did you just put that in there? I did. <laughs> she spent some time at the house, and she said she was almost immediately confronted by a hawk-faced man being pushed in an old-time wheelchair. He had a leg severed in a farm accident, and the other was crippled with arthritis. She said that he was a very angry and bitter man. I would think so. Yeah, that would do it. She also said that there was a man upstairs that had been... Strangled from behind with a bell cord, which would be like, you know, where they would ring the bell back Uh in the old days. So he was strangled from behind with a bell cord. She said that the man said, they want his money. His family wants his money. Everyone's fighting about money. Well, that doesn't surprise me one bit. So. Even if a psychic didn't say that. Right. That's just common knowledge for most people. But since then, the Rankstorf house has been remodeled. Like we said, it was moved. Mm -hmm. Over to the uh, the other location, and it is still available today to actually go by and take tours and everything. And well, not today because uh, Corona's got it actually shut down. It's still oh, it does. shut down for COVID reasons. But when oh. COVID's not going on, you can actually uh, go by, and it's a beautiful place. So I wonder if people, excuse me, are still experiencing. Oh, I'm sure. I'm things. sure. So, anyways, guys, that was our portion. Of the uh, Halloween episode, we have several more stories, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys enjoy. Hey everyone, Leslie Fear with Because I Want to Know podcast. I'm here with Ashley Hernandez. She is a second generation funeral director and mortician and with Lone Star Mortuary in Houston. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you. Well, I brought you on this because we are doing a little Halloween show for Hillbilly Horror Stories. And so I thought I'd get some good stories from you, Ashley. I know things have been going on that have been pretty weird in the mortuary business. And you had some good stories that you told me, and I want you to share them. So, please, tell me what's been going on there. Absolutely. Yeah, the energy has just been kind of strange up at our office. And I don't know if it's because of COVID or just because we've had just such a large amount of death calls lately. And it seems to be across the board. All of the funeral homes that we communicate with are all telling us that it's insane. It's insane. You do know there's going to be a full moon on Halloween, right? Yes. Yes. So I can't wait. I probably will have more stories, I'm sure, once uh, once the full moon hits. But Yeah. yeah, so I think one of the stories that I shared with you recently involved my son. And of course, he's just so full of it sometimes, but... (laughs) <laughs> no, this yeah. one really got to me because there's no way that he would have known what he knew at that time. He was about three years old, and um, we had just opened up. And of course, with the fan- with any family business, you bring your kids up there. You do you do what you have to do to kind of make it work. And, and we should probably tell people, Ashley, um, that you do actually work at a mortuary. And tell us what you do there. Yes. 
so what we do there is we embalm, we cremate, we do ID views and witness cremations, which is becoming more common now where the families in lieu of a service or sometimes in addition to a service, they will come to the crematory and physically watch their loved one being placed in our machine, or they may just view their loved one prior to cremation without actually physically witnessing them being placed in the machine. I see. So tell me now that we kind of have set the stage for everyone, what happened with your son? So we were actually um, getting the place cleaned up, just, you know, mopping and just making sure everything was put where it was supposed to be and and, right. and uh, acceptable for when a family was set to come in the next morning for a witness cremation. We had the person's casket in the view room, which is just a little area that has a window. When we open it up, you'll see the machine. So we had everything set up there. We're running around. My son pointed at the casket and he said, who is that girl in there? Oh, wow. I said, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it's very uncomfortable because I'm thinking, what is he talking about? He says, who is that girl there? She has brown hair. And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, I'm trying to deflect. Ah, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. Boy, you know, and so <laughs> I kind of shuffle him away and, and get him redirected. I personally had not opened that casket. That casket was closed because it had just been transported from a funeral home. So what happened is the guys pulled up into our back garage. We pulled that casket out and wheeled it into our view room. That was it. Nobody talked about it. There was no way for him to know, but I opened that casket up and it was a young girl with long brown hair. Oh my gosh. I know. How did he, you wonder how he knew it, but well, he was young too. And sometimes I think when kids are really young, they, they haven't been taught not to think that they can do these kinds of things or what, but that's crazy. So tell me anything else you want to say on this Halloween episode? Well, I've been having a couple of experiences where I myself am talking on my Bluetooth to whoever it may be as I'm wheeling people around on cots. Of course, we we constantly have a transfer going on where I'm moving one person from here to there. And and so I just so happened to be the embalmer on schedule that day. And I was talking to my best friend on the phone. He was giving me some updates on some things back home. And he was in the middle of telling me a story and he, he dead stopped what he was saying. And he says, who is that? Now, mind you, my best friend used to work with us, so he's familiar with everyone. He's familiar with our building. And I said, who was what? He goes, who was that talking in the background? Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, no. Um, he goes, well, do you have your Alexa on? Or I said, no, it's, it's just me. I'm here by myself. Mike is out doing a run, and everybody else is gone. I mean, it's just us. He says, Ashley, I swear to you, I heard a man in the background say, I'm not dead. Oh my God. Wow. I'm actually currently working on a man and getting him ready for his service. And he was a young man. And Eric said, yeah, he said, I heard it, Ashley. It was, it was very crystal clear. It wasn't garbled or anything. He says, I'm not dead. That's and it just fine. I don't get scared. I'm there by myself. I can spend the night up there, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, I, yeah, that would freak me out. And the fact that you can be up there by yourself. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do that at all, but, but wow. Oh my goodness. And recently Houston's been 
flooded with a tropical storm beta. And I mean, I'm sure you were pretty upset thinking you might lose your power. I'm sure that's happened, right? It has. And thankfully, we have backups and all that that will continue to keep us running. Um, But yeah, it was pretty scary. I was at work when the worst of it hit and it flooded our streets pretty bad surrounding the building. So I was stuck there. Thankfully, the power didn't go out, but I was just hoping it didn't because it is a little bit unnerving, you know. Well, it, well, especially when the power goes out, the lights are gone, totally gone. I, I think you do have backups for your freezers, but still, I don't know if you have backups for the actual lighting. But let me ask you this. Do you remember we were talking about um, the day you and I recorded for my podcast, because I want to know, you told me about that very day, walking down the hall and looking into your break room. Yes, that was, and I don't know if I told you that that happened to me again. No, you did not. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I try to send you a message. Anytime something happens, I'm like, oh, my gosh, let me tell you. So, um, yeah, so to reiterate uh, what we had discussed before, I think it was a couple weeks ago or whenever it was that we had recorded, that had just happened like that day before. Um, I was running up the hallway, and I I just happened to kind of glance into our break room to the left real quick, just to, you know, look. And I saw somebody sitting there facing me, staring at me, sitting at our break table. I was like, who is that? I mean, because it looked like a literal, it was a person in color, you know, not a shadow. Was it a male? I want to say this person was male. It was such a flash of a person that it's hard to say, but I do want to say it was an older person and most likely male. And I dead stopped right in the middle of the hallway and I backed up a little bit and I looked in the break room and there was nobody there. And I thought, God, that's so weird. But I didn't feel afraid or anything. I was just like, oh, okay. But then most recently after that happened, it happened to me again. And this time it was a little bit more creepy because once again, I was there by myself And typically at night, and you're probably going to hate to hear this, typically at night whenever I'm there by myself, I tend to turn the lights off, like in the front offices. You are one brave girl. Do you all hear that? So I was running up the hallway once again, going up and to look at somebody's file or something. I don't know. And I just happened to glance. I always do. I just always just glance in the break room. The break room lights off, but there is a dark black shadow of a cloud just like looming on the ceiling of the break room just what? in the corner and it was moving and oh, again I God. stop and I and I look and it, it's not there anymore and I walk in there and I turn on the light and I'm like maybe it was I can't explain it but it was just very strange and it wasn't it didn't seem as friendly maybe or as right it just gave me a creepy un, I was just unnerved I was like oh, that's just weird I'd be a little unnerved too, girl. I would go away. (laughs) But let me ask you this. What is the scariest thing that's actually happened, Um, whether it's been in the past or recent or whatever? It It may have been what you just told me or something else you've experienced. That one was pretty up there. The other thing that was very scary, and I think we might have discussed this one on your podcast, was my office. Well, I was actually, I was sitting at my desk and my mom was standing at my desk. We were discussing some things and I heard a crash. And it did. It scared me because it sounded horrible. And we run back to where the noise was and there's nobody there. So I go back in the garage. Everybody's out in the garage on the other side. And I said, did y'all hear that? No, we didn't hear anything. 
So my mom goes into the bathroom and she's so big on these like smelly good and plug-in things and all these little wax burners that were plugged into our bathroom wall. And the whole top was on the opposite side of the bathroom. I still can't wrap my head around that. I That just freaks me out. It does. Because it would have had to have lifted up off of the wax burner and then moved. There was no way for it to slide off. Wow. Somebody may have not liked that smell. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right? I'm like, we'll change it. Just let us know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they yeah. did. They let you know really well. It's, yeah. Well, I tell you, Ashley, every time I have you on and you tell me your stories, first of all, you're so brave. I couldn't even do it. But I know you've, you've been around the your whole life. So I do get yeah. that. I know the longer you and I get to know each other, I'm definitely going to have you back on my podcast and you're crazy brave. Let me tell you. We have so much fun. I love it. Well, And you'd have to, to be able to do what you do and, and do such a good job and, and be, like I said, second generation. And hey, let's both just wish everybody a happy Halloween. Yes. Happy Halloween. Everybody stay safe. Wear your scary mask and your medical mask. <laughs> Touche girl. Happy Halloween, everyone. I'm Ashley. And I'm Bianca, and we are the hosts of Creep It Real podcast. Thank you so much to Jerry and Tracy for inviting us onto their incredible Halloween special. It is an honor. Over at Creep It Real, we explore all the dark corners of this and any other worlds, from stories of terrifying paranormal entities to their very often even more terrifying human counterparts. For our contribution to the Hillbilly Horror Story Halloween special, we wanted to bring you the lore of a truly terrifying entity that has stuck with us throughout all of our research, the Black-Eyed Children. Black-Eyed Children, Black-Eyed Kids, or B-E-K, are an American contemporary legend of paranormal creatures that resemble children between the ages of 6 and 16 with unnaturally pale skin and shiny, solid black eyes, who are reportedly seen hitchhiking or panhandling, or are encountered on doorsteps of people's homes and even in their cars. People who have encountered black-eyed kids say that they felt the children had a hypnotizing effect on them, which is typically broken by a sudden sense of overwhelming fear, as they elicit a fight-or-flight response. Very scary. Afterward, they are terrified and think about the children almost obsessively for years and years. They often describe them as evil, predatory, and sinister, mm -hmm. and as though they were predators sizing up their prey. Though they're just kids, right? No, these are definitely not your normal children. One of the most compelling stories we found was from a man named John who had enlisted in the military straight out of high school and at the time of his encounter had been serving over seven years. He considered himself a level-headed, logical person who had never held any interest in the paranormal. What's that like? Anytime he got leave from his duty, he would go visit his family in Texas, visiting various members of his family all across the state, which is just what he was doing in 2009 when he went home to visit his parents in the Houston area area for a few days and then headed west to visit his cousins he said he drove at night because he loved taking the long texas roads in the middle of the night when he could take his time and it was just him and the roads and the sky oh. usually and i i know all about those texas roads and it is very pretty but let's just hear what happens to this man around 3 a.m in the morning he hit a long stretch of road in western texas where homes are few and far between and seeing that there were no cars coming for miles he decided to pull over and take a pee going a few paces away from the vehicle just in case 
John said he stretched a bit and looked up at the stars for what couldn't be more than five minutes, and then began to head back to the truck. His eyes had adjusted to the dark pretty well at this point, and as he walked around the driver's side of the truck, he got the shock of his life when a young boy stood in front of it. <laughs> he jerked back, startled that someone was standing so close. And from where? Where did this child come from? Right. He just appeared. About the boy, he said, he didn't move a muscle. I think if my eyes hadn't been adjusted to the dark, I probably wouldn't have even seen him. I realized right away that it was just a kid, and that made me calm down a bit. I shook my head and said, Geez, kid, you scared the hell out of me. This kid, he didn't miss a beat. He says to me, I want to get in your truck. I didn't say anything at first. I wasn't sure what to say to tell you the truth, he said. When he heard the boy's statement, a cold chill went down his back. His mind was racing as he tried to piece together where the boy had come from. He glanced around in every direction, looking for a sign of a house or a car, but there was nothing to be seen. The boy still hadn't moved a muscle, and again said coldly, I want to get in your truck now. John says he had a bad, bad feeling in the pit of his stomach, and we don't blame him, and his hair stood on end. He tried to talk himself out of the fear he was feeling, but he says he could not shake the weird feeling he had, and it just kept getting stronger. He tried to smile and engage the boy to find out why he was stuck out here, alone on a desolate road in the middle of nowhere so late at night. You live around here, kid? The boy stood totally still and responded in the same monotone voice. Just let me get in your truck. Mm -mm. We can go for a ride. Nope. No, we can't. Do you need to get home, kid? Whereabouts do you live? The boy remained planted in his spot. Just let me get in your truck now. It won't take long. What? What won't take long? John leaned forward to get a closer look at the boy. From his height and size, he estimated the boy was about 10 years old. He was wearing a dull white shirt that was too big for him and looked like hand-me-downs. The shirt was tucked into dark trousers. His hair was dark and shaggy. He couldn't see many other details due to the low light. He said his skin, though, was very light and pale, showing up well in the limited light of the night. While the kid still had not moved, he again repeated his request, sounding more insistent this time. Just open the door and tell me to get in. We'll have a short ride. Whoa. That's so weird that they are... Well, just tell me to do this. Just tell oh, me to get in. Like a vampire. Just, yeah, exactly. John says he felt like he wanted to run and leave the boy and his truck as far behind as he could. I realized I was squinting my eyes and I felt like I was trying to shake off a punch or something. It was a funny feeling. I knew right then that I had to get out of there. I don't think so, kid, he told the boy. He opened his truck door, keeping his eyes on the boy, and quickly jumped in, slamming the door behind him, and quickly starting the truck. He turned to look out his driver's side window, and the boy was suddenly very close beside it, peering in at him. Uh. John says he never felt that kind of fear in his life, and he floored the gas. A couple miles down the road, he pulled over at a rest stop and realized he'd been gripping the wheel so tightly that his knuckles were white and he was nearly hyperventilating as he was breathing so fast. He took a deep breath and began to feel ridiculous. What the hell was he doing running from a child that needed help? What if the kid really badly needed help? Something had elicited a very primal response within him and he couldn't figure out quite what it was. And this is very common in these stories. He decided to turn the truck around and go back to the spot where he had encountered the boy. He found the exact spot he'd pulled over, got out a flashlight, and searched the area as thoroughly as possible. 
As he stood on the dark road, his mind flashed back to the boy standing at his driver's window, staring at him through it, and he got that feeling all over again. He jumped in his truck and took off, deciding to forego the breakfast stop he'd been planning to make, driving straight through the night until he reached his final destination. He says all he wanted to do was get that kid out of his mind, but the image of him just kept popping up, the black eyes peering at him through the window. On his way back to Houston a few days later, he made a point to make the journey during the daytime. Again, he found the spot he'd encountered the boy, and the nearest homes were at least a few miles away, well off the beaten path. Even in the daytime, John did not want to linger long at that spot or let the sun begin to descend at all while he was there. In fact, he stopped driving at night after that altogether. I've never really gotten that image out of my head. I get rid of it for a while, but it always seems to come back around. Maybe there's some explanation, but there was nowhere for that boy to go. Nowhere for him to hide, and I don't know how he made me feel so damn scared. He didn't really do anything, and it doesn't make sense to me. While John had always thought his military training had prepared him for anything, he found himself woefully unprepared for the late-night encounter with that creepy little boy in the middle of nowhere in West Texas that evening. Like many paranormal entities, the black-eyed children are often thought to be harbingers of doom, death, or destruction, and encounters with them are often associated with bad luck, illness, and even death. Whether they are aliens, ghosts, interdimensional beings, or something else we can't even comprehend at this point, we do not truly know. But they're out there, and there's one thing I know for sure. If they come knocking, do not let them in. For a little deeper of a dive into black-eyed children and the entities that are connected with them, including men in black, shadow people, the hat men, and more, come and find us on your favorite streaming app. Again, we are Creep It Real Podcast, and we hope to see you soon. Hey, hillbillies. Happy Halloween. This is Diane and Kelly of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. And we're here to share a little story with you. Now, for those who don't know, History Goes Bump shares haunted histories. And since we're from Central Florida, we thought we'd share one from one of our local areas. This is about Ashley's Restaurant. Ashley's Restaurant in Rockledge, Florida, has been through many hands and had a variety of names from Jack's Tavern to Cooney's Tavern to the Mad Duchess to the Loose Caboose to Sparrowhawk to Gentleman Jim's. Phew! That's a lot of names. That is a lot of names. (laughs) The original restaurant opened in 1933 with its present incarnation, Ashley's Restaurant, opening in 1985. The building was designed in the Tudor style and is a quaint looking structure made from wood and stucco and brick that is two stories. There are stained glass windows and antique pictures and mirrors that hang on the dark wood walls. The food is great American cuisine, but our favorite part of this restaurant is cold Ethel. Ethel Allen was a 19-year-old local who ran with a really tough crowd and was a regular at Jack's Tavern. Eventually, running with the local thugs would prove to be dangerous, and Ethel was murdered right in front of the restaurant, and her body was dumped on the shores of the nearby Indian River in 1934. It is believed because Ethel liked the bar and was murdered there that her spirit has remained. Ashley's Restaurant is thought to be one of the most haunted restaurants in the area. Guests and employees all have stories about Ethel that range from fun pranks to some darker stuff. One of the main haunted areas is not surprising because, as we've found through doing our podcast, women's restrooms are very prone to attracting ghosts. 
That's why women go to the restrooms together. They think it's oh, some other why? devious thing, but it's just for protection from spirits. <laughs> One woman tells of a story where she was in a stall doing her business and noticed the feet in the stall next to hers, and she thought the shoes looked out of place. They were high-heeled boots that buttoned all the way up, something in fashion from a period long ago. The woman exited her stall and glanced back at the other stall and saw that the door was wide open and no one was in that stall. Ethel opens and closes the stall doors in the restroom and turns on the water too. Some women have even claimed to see a faint reflection of another woman in the mirror. Patrons claim to feel icy hands on their shoulders from something unseen. Those kind of touchy-feely moments are not so bad, but some physical touches have been more violent in nature. Several female staff have claimed that they were choked from behind when no one was actually behind them. The stairs have a foreboding feeling and some women have been pushed, causing them to lose their balance. There's also a feeling of suffocation when on the stairs. And one of the stranger claims is that people sometimes feel frozen in motion. Manager was trying to enter the restroom and she felt like she could not push the door or move forward. In the corridor leading to the women's restroom, people feel like they are moving in slow motion. Now this activity may not all be because of Ethel. A child was killed by a car in front of the restaurant in the 1950s. This child could be the prankster turning off and on the lights in the restaurant and setting off the burglar alarm. A paranormal investigator took a picture that featured an older man wearing a white shirt, black pants, and with a white towel over his arm down on the first floor. He had thought there was only a female employee down there. When he went down, he only saw that one employee. He asked around later about this older man, and everybody said that no one fitting that description worked there. He also picked up some EVP, and employees have heard disembodied whispering. There are those who think that the story of Ethel is just a legend, but she actually does have a gravesite in a small cemetery in Merritt Island. Does she haunt Ashley's restaurant? That, that is, is for you to decide. decide. We hope you all have a very happy Halloween. Keep, Keep it spooky!
so, uh, where are you heading, little lady? Drive. Sure thing, but, uh, how far are you going? Just drive. Yes, ma'am. Come on, y'all. No need in being shy. Isn't there anyone out there wanting some company on this cold, rainy night? Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. That guy's been trying to get someone to talk to him all night. You should. Should what? Talk to him? He's probably some old fat man in the basement. No, thank you. I'm Duke. What's your name, sugar? Ah, knucklehead. I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget my manners. What's your name, madam? Doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. I I didn't mean to intrude. No name. What's your story? Running from the cops? Running from a boyfriend? Tick tock, tick tock, my friends. We are running out of time. Can you believe that guy? Now that's one persistent little man. You really should talk to him. Talk to that guy? Are you kidding? No. Not interested. I run into enough freaks on the road. I don't need to talk to one, too. You're going to die tonight. What the hell did you just say? Did you just threaten me, lady? Because if you did... No. I'm not going to hurt you. You're damn straight about that. Now... I don't want no attention here, so I'm assuming you didn't threaten me. Right? Alright, then. Oh, come on, chumps. Let's talk. Just shut up already, man. Nobody wants to talk. Someone out there? What's your name, my friend? Nope. You're not sucking me into a conversation, pal. It doesn't matter. I already know who I'm talking to. Yeah, well, uh, I somehow doubt that. No, no, ab- no, absolutely not. Lucky guess. It was nothing more than a lucky guess. You might want to listen to him, Duke. No, uh-uh. Don't you start that name game. 
You're running out of time. Out of time for what? I said, out of time for what? Answer me! You'll be out of range. Talk to him. Mm, fine. Okay, fine. You win. Let's talk. How do you know my name? I was right? Wow! <laughs> now, now that was a lucky guess. I knew it. Well, that was a hell of a guess for sure. So what do you want? If I can guess your name, I bet I can guess what road you're on too. Alright, I'll take the bait. Where am I? joke is this? Where are you? Are you driving behind me? <laughs> Relax, my friend. Just another lucky guess. Lucky guess, my ass. That makes sense. Look, uh, yeah, okay, um, yeah, sorry. No fear, my friend. It's late, dark, and it was raining. If I was heading down the strip of road on a night like this, I, I think I would be a little creeped out, too. Creeped out? Huh. Now, why would I be creeped out on this strip of road? You don't know the story, do you? No, my friend, I don't. I'm a long hauler. I'm not from around these woods. Why not? Good! So, I guess the story had to start, oh, I don't know, about 20 years ago now. There was a couple that was staying somewhere down off the highway that you're on right now. Well, the couple had just gotten 
that you know, so you know there was love in the air. Well, like I said, they were staying down their way for their honeymoon. The way the story goes is the husband liked his private time. He was known for going on walks alone to kind of help clear his mind and whatnot. Well, one particular night, he went for his walk, but this time, he didn't return. After a few hours, his bride started to worry. She left the house to look for him and headed off the direction she saw her new husband head. They said she walked about two miles and saw no signs of him. She turned around to return to the house. She made it about halfway when it started to rain. You know, a lot like tonight. She was miserable. Shortly after the rain started, a, a car pulled over and offered to give her a ride home. Not wanting to walk in the rain any longer, she accepted. That would prove to be a bad choice on her part. The next morning, the homeowner came to check on the couple. He found all the doors and windows open. All the lights were still on and, and the bed was still made. Fearing the worst, he called the police. After several hours of searching, they found the husband's body laying halfway in the swamp. It's a real miracle them gators didn't get his body. You see, she had stopped just a few feet from finding her husband's body. She would never know exactly how close she was. A mile down the road on the side, they found her body too. She had been raped and badly beaten. The car that picked her up, well, it left tire marks in the mud, but they were never able to find the killer. It said that on dark, rainy nights like the night she died, she could be found on the side of the highway. She walked up and down the road looking for her killer and his car. She waits for some poor soul to pick her up. It's said once she's picked up and off for a ride, she'll wait until the gentleman is distracted and take her revenge on him. The drivers are never seen or heard from again. They always find the vehicle on the side of the road with the hazards on, but they never find the drivers. So my advice to you, my friend, if you see any hitchhikers while you're on that strip, do not stop. Just keep trucking forward. Hope you enjoyed this short story from Triple H Media. If you would like to hear more, simply search for Hillbilly Horror House on any podcast player. 
2021 looks to be an exciting year, as we will be airing our two new stories. Hillbilly Horror House, The Redemption and a Space Adventure Story Called, and Beyond. Thank you for listening. My name is Justin, I host Mysterious Circumstances, and this story is called Mr. Smile. It was in early November of 1997 that a series of very strange sessions led a child psychologist in Maine to contact the authorities. It began when a patient of his began to tell him about one of their friends. This friend being imaginary as far as both the psychiatrist and the boy's parents were concerned. He called his friend Mr. Smile and would talk about him at great length during some sessions. The boy called him Mr. Smile because he would always be smiling and because when he was around the boy said everything felt happy. He said that there was a feeling of everything being okay. The boy in question was being treated for serious issues to do with anger and depression, but when Mr. Smile was around, he said that all the anger and the sadness seemed to just disappear. He said that Mr. Smile wouldn't speak, but rather just stand there, at the foot of his bed. He smelled like candy, and just by being there, he made the boy feel calm and safe. The psychiatrist assumed this imaginary friend was some sort of coping mechanism the boy had developed to deal with the problems at home that had led him to his violent temper and thought nothing of it, really. Until another patient, a girl of about nine years old, also began talking about her imaginary friend, Mr. Smile. And then a boy of seven, and then a boy of twelve, and then a girl of eleven. All in all, close to 15 separate patients began to talk to him about Mr. Smile. The first few he'd put down to coincidence. Many children have imaginary friends, and the name and description of Mr. Smile were just generic enough that it didn't concern him too much at first. But as more and more of his patients told him about Mr. Smile, he began to grow concerned, and he asked for more details. Every single one of them described him the same way, using the exact same words. Now there was no way that all these children could be in contact with each other. Five of them, for instance, were currently being homeschooled, and according to their parents when he spoke to them, never really even left the house, except when it was to accompany them on shopping trips and stuff like that. There was no way that every single one of these kids could have rehearsed or prepared their statements together, which led him to a deeply disturbing conclusion. He spoke privately with each of the children's parents one at a time. He avoided disclosing too much information, but told them that something troubling had cropped up in the multiple sessions with various patients and that he believed that there was a chance their child was at risk. He asked for their permission to discuss matters with the authorities and the parents gave their consent, provided they were kept in the loop as to what was going on. And so over the course of the next week, the police came and talked to the children about their friend. 
They asked for details about his appearance, which they couldn't seem to describe apart from the smile and that he was not like them. How he got into their house, anything he said or did while he was there. Because by this point the psychiatrist, the parents, and the police were all convinced that Mr. Smile was quite real and quite dangerous. The authorities had checked to make sure there were no known predators living in the area, which they had confirmed was not the case. But it was quite clear that whoever this Mr. Smile was, he was a real person who had been sneaking into the homes of these children at night. None of the children claimed to know how he got in. They said they would just wake up and he'd be there at the foot of their bed. Sometimes they said he would be singing something, but not in English. It sounded like a lullaby, they said. It made them feel safe. Finally, the children were asked to draw Mr. Smile as they couldn't put into words how he looked. Each and every one of these children picked up a red crayon and proceeded to color in the entire page until it was just a rectangle of red. When asked where his head, arms, and legs were, they would insist that they had drawn those. They claimed that they had drawn a perfect picture of the man at the foot of their bed, and when they were told that they had simply colored in the page and not drawn anything at all, they became deeply angry feeling that they were being accused of lying and insisting that what they had drawn was a picture of the man they had seen. Acting on more of a hunch than anything else, the psychiatrist decided to show one of them the colored-in rectangles to the various children and ask them what it was. Each and every one of them, with no knowledge of what the picture was supposed to be or who had drawn it, and with no knowledge that the other children that had been spoken to about this subject even existed, replied that it was a picture of Mr. Smile. Cameras and baby monitors were placed in the children's room so that they could be monitored. Many of the parents simply stopped sleeping altogether, staying up all night staring at the screens that displayed where their children slept. At no point did anyone enter or exit the bedrooms. No sounds except for them snoring or occasionally talking in their sleep were heard over the baby monitors. There was no sign of Mr. Smile. After almost two weeks of this, many of them had begun to doubt that Mr. Smile had ever existed. Other psychiatrists since have put the whole thing down to some strange shared delusion that, while it couldn't be explained yet, did not have any basis in reality. Some suggested that maybe this whole Mr. Smile thing had its basis in a TV show or movie that the children had all watched, leading them all to dream up something similar. Then one of the boys went missing. The camera in his room had gone dead at around 2 in the morning. His mother had run to check on him, only to find his room empty. It had literally taken her less than a minute to run to his room. There was no possible way for him to leave or be taken and be out of her sight in the time it took her to leave her bedroom and run towards his, but he was gone. She said there was a smell like cotton candy in the room. The search for the boy turned up nothing. No one had seen anything strange or unusual around the home before or during the disappearance and no trace of him was ever found. It was less than a week later that one of the girls who had spoken of Mr. Smile vanished as well. Then another. Then another of the boys. One by one, each of them began to disappear, until only four of them remained. 
The four remaining children began to talk about how Mr. Smile and his friends were going to take them away soon. When asked about these friends, they talked about how Mr. Smile lived with the other smiling men in the happy place, and that he would take them there soon. They said that there were lots of people there already, and that in the happy place everything was beautiful. They said they knew about it because Mr. Smile talked to them in their heads, because he couldn't talk like other people did, and that he would show them pictures in their heads of the place they were going. Then things began to get increasingly disturbing. After a few weeks, the children began complaining of headaches and nausea. Their schools reported that they had begun to suffer hallucinations, and two of them started complaining that they didn't like the place that Mr. Smile was showing them anymore. One began screaming for half an hour, acting as if they were having a fit and screaming for the colors to stop, that the colors were horrible and that they needed them to go away. One of the children claimed that Mr. Smile was talking to them in their head all the time now and was telling them things, terrible things, but they couldn't talk about it, that they mustn't because then their parents would know about the terrible things too. The psychiatrist asked them to write down what Mr. Smile was saying, promising that he would show it to no one, managing to gain the trust of one of the boys enough that he agreed. The contents of the book are known only to him and the authorities, but whenever anyone involved has been asked about it, they just get real quiet and quickly find an excuse to change the subject. The children stopped sleeping. Footage from the security camera showed them sitting upright, not even blinking their eyes, just staring at the wall without moving or making a sound. Sedatives did absolutely nothing. One of the girls began cutting strange circular marks into her skin while two of the boys ceased communicating in English altogether. The language they spoke was never identified, and despite numerous people being asked to listen to them, they could not translate what they were saying. By the start of 1999, all four of the children had vanished into thin air. There was no trace of who took them. Searches have turned up nothing to this day, with no indication of where they are or if they're even dead or alive. No suspects have ever been found either. All four of them appeared to simply vanish into thin air, much like the others, all of whom also remain missing. Their disappearances unexplained. Happy Halloween, hillbillies. 
Hi guys, we're back once again this year for the Jerry and Tracy's Halloween Spectacular episode. We are the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I know some of you already follow us, some of you don't, so please come join us. I'm your host Jimbo, and I'm joined once again by... The co-host, Terrence. Terrence, the millennial. So, um, we thought we would do something really cool this, uh, this year. We are actually going back to discuss the original Night of the Living Dead. Um, so uh, this is obviously a condensed version of what we do on our full episode, which we will be doing this episode in a expanded format for our yeah. Halloween episode. But Jerry said, hey, just 10 minutes or less. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to cut down some of the information and go ahead and put it out there. So Terrence, let's take it away. All right. So Night of the Living Dead, release date October 4th, 1968. So it came out just in time for Halloween. And just like this episode. And it's almost to the day that we're recording this. Exactly. Pretty close. Uh, its budget was a really, really small $114,000. And it made way more. <laughs> it made $30 million. Ridiculous. Worldwide. In 1968. In 1968, yes. Uh this was directed by George A. Romero, also known for uh, just a slew of zombie movies, really. Um, obviously, Night of the Living Dead, um, Day of the Dead, so on and so forth. Uh, this was written by uh, George Romero and John A. Russo. Uh, this was filmed in black and white. And fun fact, uh, the choice of filming black and white was purely budgetary. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're looking at uh, technical specs. The cinematography was done by George A. Romero. So both directing and doing cinematography. That's those are uh, that that that's a lot on his plate. Right. <laughs> uh, this was edited by George A. Romero. So that's how low budget it was. Um, a lot of people wore multiple hats. Uh, this was production uh, from Image Ten, and this was distributed by uh, Continental Distribution. Um, its awards uh, didn't really win anything until uh, recent, really. But uh, so the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, which we mentioned a lot, especially during Halloween time, uh, in 2018, it won the Saturn Award for Best Blu-ray and DVD Special Edition Release. Uh, so this is his final cut. Like this, right. this has been redone a couple times, and then this is the most recent we're talking about the most recent uh, sort of uh, edited edition um the horror host hall of fame 2011 it won horror host hall of fame uh behind the uh, behind the screams george a romero uh, national film preservation board 1999 it won into the national film registry but now we're off to the synopsis which is a group of strangers find themselves trapped in a farmhouse surrounded by flesh-eating zombies <laughs> hey, why don't you go ahead and give us a couple of the cast members uh, we'll go into the fuller detail of the cast on yeah. our full episode so so we have uh the main character Dwayne jones ben um, so a little fun fact there real quick. He's the first African-American actor to star as the main character in a horror film. Um, and then we'll dive into more of his role and to the, uh, and the other stuff. Uh, and then we have Ju Judith Odea as Barbara. The part that I get to do most weeks is I give out the fun information. Yeah. <laughs> Terrence goes through all, a lot of the cinematography awards and all that. So uh, this was actually shot in only 30 days. 
Yep. And uh, what was really interesting is that they were looking for somewhere to shoot, and this people were going to tear down this farmhouse. And they said, well, hey, we will take it. And it was really bad, so they actually had to spend a little bit of money to fix up the kitchen, um, if you know this house. So they were going to destroy it anyway, so they yeah. figured, hey, well, it's good for the budget. Let's go ahead and do it. Uh, this was also George Romero's first movie that he actually ever directed. So it was his... Yep. His first His film. debut movie, yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, little things about this. The word zombie never appears in this film. Call them ghouls. They call them ghouls. They call them, I think, flesh eaters. But they yeah. never they never say zombies. Um, when a lot of the blood, if you will, was actually Bosco chocolate syrup yep. <laughs> to simulate the blood <laughs> in the film because, you know, budgetary reasons. And, by the way, it's in black and white. So, you know, the same as Psycho that we yep. covered. You know, they use some of the same stuff there. Uh, when the zombies are eating the bodies in the burnout truck, they were actually eating roast ham covered in chocolate sauce. The filmmakers joked that it was so nausea-inducing that it was almost a waste of time putting the makeup on the zombies as they <laughs> ended up looking pale and sick anyways. Fun fact about the makeup, they used mortician's wax uh, to do a lot of the uh, zombie look on the like sort of their rotting flesh. Right. Uh, also, uh, sadly, George Romero, he saw very little profit from this film because due to his lack of knowledge regarding distribution deals, the distributors walked away with practically all of the profits from oh, this film. no. And you see how much it made. You yeah. know what I mean? So, um, also, the body upstairs in the house um, was made by Romero, who used ping pong balls for the eyes. <laughs> you know, if you, if you know what I'm talking If you've seen yeah. this movie, you know the scene I'm talking about. Uh, screenwriter John A. Russo appears as a zombie who gets killed by Ben with a tire iron. He also allowed himself to be set on fire for real when nobody else wanted to do the stunt. Romero approved of it, of his co-writer saying, sure, do the zombie walk. I was probably hungover anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, George A. Romero chose Evans City, City Cemetery for the first scene due largely to its isolated location. They didn't want anybody uh, driving by stop. What, what's this whole film crew doing here yeah. and all that? Uh, fun fact, we talked about this earlier, is that a tornado actually did touch down and hit that cemetery. And up to 200 bodies were <laughs> pulled from their graves. Yeah. So I, I don't think they left that in the film, but that would have been an interesting take. You know what I mean? Of A uh, funny I mean, thing, um, Romero, uh, when he heard about that he's like uh did they try to get up and walk right <laughs> um the first uh scene which was the last scene filmed was uh barbara and johnny walking around in the cemetery yep. it was so cold it was filmed in november 1967 and the actors actually had to hold their breath to avoid visible condensation in the frosty autumn air oh dang so that'd be really hard you know to act anyway and then to right. hold your breath while you're doing that especially when they're running you know what i mean oh yeah yeah um Hinsman was also the zombie in the cemetery, uh, the one that set the uh, put out the fire earlier. Yep. Um, but he was also the zombie that's chased him at the beginning. And when he's going to break the car window with the rock, he actually the rock went in, and actually Romero was the one in the back seat filming that, and the rock barely missed him while he was oh, filming man. in the back seat. Uh, well, during the struggle between uh, Johnny and uh, the zombie in the cemetery, Hensman, he actually uh, need Hensman in the groin. <laughs> zombie down, zombie down. Um, Romero originally wanted to cast Betty Aberlin of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood from 1968 as Barbara. But Mr. Rogers would not allow it because of the way, you know, how yeah. he was protected of his show Absolutely. and the family values. Which and all makes that. sense, yeah. But she played Lady Aberlene Kitty, Mama Bear. She appeared in 495 episodes from 1968 to 2001. Oh, so, wow. uh, Romero always asked if the tombstone Barbara is kneeling in front of was fake or not. And he said, are you kidding? We couldn't afford fake tombstones <laughs> back in those days. Uh, much of the dialogue of this movie was improvised. Yep. Uh, allegedly, George A. Romero never did his own laundry during filming. He just bought new clothes instead. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> really, he probably spent more on the, the clothing than he did his budget for the film. That's you know? funny. Although Silly Putty and other basic special effects techniques were used, most of the body parts the zombies are eating were real internal organs and bones from animals. And a lot of the actors playing the flesh-eater roles were friends in advertising and clients Russo and Romero were in contact with. They were all commercial clients of ours that we considered uh, staid people ordinarily, and it just stunned us that they chomped into these organs. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. They kept a straight face, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Johnny, Sheriff McClellan, and Karen probably have less than 10 minutes of screen time combined, but they're responsible for two, two of the film's uh, most quoted lines. Do you know what one of them is? They're coming for you, Barbara. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. And then you have the little girl that's just waylaid yep. on her mom, which... We'll talk about that mm. later. And last, the zombie hand that Tom hacks up with the kitchen knife was made of clay filled with the chocolate syrup. So uh, I got one more. Um, so uh, Dwayne Jones, uh, his character was originally supposed to be a tough guy trucker, um, but he felt that uh, he wanted to be portrayed more as an intellectual. Um, so he talked with Romero, and they did changed a lot of the dialogue and that's where a, a good chunk of the improv comes from too right uh sorry this is kind of crammed together usually we spread it out and uh, jerry said we only had a limited amount of time to get this done so if you liked what you heard please go subscribe to us we are the tragedy of cinema podcast uh we're available on uh, probably almost any platform that you listen to your podcast on so with that being said i think this episode's coming to a close and that's yep. a wrap and, and cut, cut. Good meeting you. I'm Shane Waters, the storyteller from Hometown History and Foul Play Podcasts. Sit, Sit back as I tell you the true story of a murder in the well. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. If you know this rhyme, then you know of the murder that gripped the nation on August 4th, 1892, when Lizzie Borden was accused of murdering her stepmother, Emma, and her father, Andrew. But did you know that Emma and Andrew weren't the first Bordens murdered on the property? Almost 50 years earlier, Lizzie's great-uncle, an aunt lived on that same property. Some say next door, others say on the same grounds. But the result was the same. On May 8, 1848, a grisly murder suicide was discovered. It started when a young girl who lived with the Bordens left to fetch a pail of water. When she returned, she noticed that Miss Borden and her two youngest children, Eliza and Holder, were nowhere, nowhere to be seen. seen. Curious, the young girl asked another, who lived in the house, Have you seen Mrs. Borden and the children? The other girl said, 
She was heading into the cellar, but the children weren't with her. As the young girl made her way down the cellar stairs, she became frightened when she began hearing low groans from the bottom. Rushing to find a neighbor, they made their way down the stairs again. That's when they made the discovery. Lying on the ground, covered in blood, was Miss Borden. Her throat was cut, and Mr. Borden's razor was there on the ground next to her. They searched the property for the missing children with no luck. Dread entered them when they walked closer to the well. When they looked down, the bodies of Eliza and Holder were found. They were tossed in the well and left to drown. They say Miss Borden went insane and dropped Eliza and Holder into the well and in a fit of remorse went into the cellar and took her own life. No one knows her reason for committing such an unspeakable act, but it's possible since having so many children so quickly that she began suffering from postpartum depression. The sad tragedy slowly was forgotten over time until 50 years later when Lizzie was accused of murdering Andrew and Emma on the same property. The case was resurrected and brought up in Lizzie's trial. If you visit the house today, you will see children's toys in certain areas, as though they were left there as presents for the long-lost Eliza and Holder. Many people who have visited claim to have heard the voices and laughter of children playing around the house, which begs the question, did this tragedy cause the property to become tainted, possibly evil? Did something possess the murderer of Andrew and Emma Borden almost 50 years later? Regardless of the answer, this story will no longer be forgotten, and the Borden house will always be known for heartbreak and tragedy, and will continue to fascinate all of those who enter. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. And we are excited to be part of this Halloween special sponsored by Hillbilly Horror Stories. Jerry and Tracy, thank thank you. you for this opportunity. We are going to share with you one of our favorite spooky tales, a chilling legend from our own state of Illinois, the legend of Resurrection Mary. Resurrection Cemetery is in Justice, Illinois, a suburb of southwest Chicago, It was consecrated in 1904 by the Roman Catholic Church. The cemetery is large and covers 540 acres. In fact, it is one of the largest cemeteries in the United States, and its triangular shape and weird happenings have dubbed it the Resurrection Triangle. One of the cemetery's most beautiful but daunting features are the two large brass metal gates that greet its visitors. The gates, long greened, from oxidation and time. In 1976, a close inspection of the gates and a trained eye would have revealed something very unusual. Two of the bars were bent, a hand's length apart, 
and scorched with two black sooty handprints, complete with fingerprints. The prints had been discovered by Officer Pat Homa of the Justice Police Department after responding to a call that a woman was locked in the cemetery and shaking the gates in an effort to get out. While the city of Chicago was quick to say that it was caused by a work truck that had backed into the fence, locals told a very different story. The marks, of course, were caused by Mary, the cemetery's resident ghost. Crowds of people gathered and came to see the marks, and soon, the city cut the bent bars out and replaced it with wire fencing until the bars could be straightened and replaced. Once the bars had been straightened and replaced, they still prominently displayed the blackened areas that seemed to never oxidize back to the gate's green color. They remained in that state until 2002, when the cemetery replaced the entire front gate. The story of Resurrection Mary is a story of a beautiful blonde, lost love, a lonely highway, tragedy, and a hitchhiking ghost. While Mary's exact origin story is not known, legends abound. The most prominent says Mary's story began at the O. Henry Ballroom in the mid-1930s. The ballroom, now called the Willowbrook Ballroom, sits just off of Archer Avenue in Willow Springs. It was a popular place for swing and big band dancing and booked the best bands of the day. And because of its secluded nature and reputation for booze, prostitution, and gambling, young people from all over Chicago's South Side flocked there. Mary was at the O. Henry Ballroom with her boyfriend that fateful night. They spent the night dancing and drinking, but at some point, Seriously? their fun turned yeah, into an argument, and Mary stormed out facing a cold walk home, alone. But as fate would have it, as she walked up Archer Avenue, alone, she was struck in a hit-and-run accident. As the driver fled, Mary was left to die. Her parents, grieving, buried her in Resurrection Cemetery in her favorite white party dress. And it wasn't long before motorists started picking up a beautiful young blonde woman dressed in white on Archer Avenue only to have her vanish from their vehicles at the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. But is there any truth to this legend? Did Mary exist and die on Archer Avenue? Or is this nothing more than an urban legend, folklore, and just another of dozens of stories about vanishing hitchhiker spirits? This legend, while very similar to many others, does however seem to stem from at least some truth and offers us evidence multiple eyewitness accounts. The first encounters with Mary started in 1934, when numerous drivers reported that a girl tried to flag them down for rides on Archer Avenue, or attempted to jump onto the running boards of their vehicles as they passed by. Several people have had face-to-face encounters with Mary. One such encounter occurred in 1939, when Jerry Paulus reported spending almost an entire evening with the ghost. I was at the uh, Liberty Grove and Hall, which uh, is a dance hall, and I uh, spied this really attractive uh, blonde sitting in the corner. She must have sat there for a couple hours before I got the nerve to ask her to dance. She accepted, and we spent the next several hours just dancing and talking. One thing that I noticed about her was that her skin was very cold, icy really to the touch. As the evening concluded, I asked her if I could drive her home, and she agreed. 
giving me an address on South Demon Avenue. As we left, she asked me if I could go the way of Arch Avenue, which was strange because it was really out of the way, but I didn't care. I just wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. As I uh, approached uh, Resurrection Cemetery, she asked me to pull over and let her out there. I was confused, but I did pull over, and I didn't understand why she wanted to get out at such a dark and odd location. There was a row of houses just off of Archer, and I assumed that she was going to go over there. I asked her if I could walk her home. She declined and turned in a seat facing me, and that's when she said, This is where I have to get out, and where I'm going, you cannot follow. I didn't understand, and before I could respond, she jumped out of the car and ran towards the gates of the Resurrection Cemetery. And right there, before my eyes, I swear to you, she vanished. The next day, Jerry decided to go to the address she had given him, but the woman who answered the door told him that he could not have possibly spent the evening with her daughter, as she had been dead for four years. Paulus was shown a picture by the woman and positively identified her as the woman he had spent the evening with. There are many such encounters with Mary, all ending the same way, with her suitor for the evening shocked and confused at the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. There were multiple Mary sightings in the 1930s, but the encounters seemed to die off until the 1970s when they picked up again. It was during this time that the cemetery was undergoing some renovations, renovations that may have caused Mary some unrest. Bob Main, the night manager at a nightclub named Harlow's, had two encounters with Mary in 1973. She appeared twice in the nightclub. He said that her expression seemed to look right through you and also described her appearance. She was about 24 to 30 years old, five foot eight or nine. Slender with yellow blonde hair to the shoulders as she wore in these big spooly curls coming down from the high forehead. She was really pale, like she powdered her whole face and body. She had in this old dress that was yellowed like a wedding dress left in the sun. She sat right next to the dance floor and wouldn't talk to anyone. She danced all by herself, this pirouette type dance people were saying, who is this bizarre chick? The strangest thing was, even though we carded everyone who came in there, nobody, either night, ever saw her come in and they never saw her leave. When Maine and the other staff members tried to talk to the young woman to see if she was okay, the woman only shook her head. Another well-documented Mary encounter happened in 1979 to a cab driver that apparently came in contact with her near the intersection of Archer Avenue and Willow Springs Road. This story appeared in the Suburban Tribune and was told by the cabbie who identified himself as Ralph. It was a Thursday night, and I was lost. I dropped this big spender way the hell down in Palo Heights, or Hills, or someplace like that, and I was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned onto Archer, down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. And there she was. She was standing there, with no coat on, at the entrance of this little shopping center. No coat. And it's one of those really cold ones, too. She didn't put her thumb out or nothing like that. 
She just looked at my cab. Of course, I stopped. I figured maybe she had car trouble or something. She hopped right in the front seat, and she had on this fancy kind of white dress, like she'd been to a wedding or something. And those new kind of disco-type shoes with the straps and that. She was a looker. A blonde. I mean, I didn't have any ideas like that. She was young enough to be my daughter. 21 tops. I asked her where she was going, and she said she had to get home. I asked her what was wrong, if she'd had car trouble or what, but she really didn't answer. She was fuzzy. Maybe she'd had a couple of drinks or something and was just tired. I don't know. Oh, the only thing she really did say was that the snow came early this year. Other than that, she just nodded when I asked, and if we were supposed to just keep going up Archer. Mainly, she was just looking out the windows at the snow and the trees. It was obvious that her mind was a million miles away. Maybe she had smoked something, or was on drugs or something. Who knows? A couple of miles up Archer, and there she jumped with a start like a horse and was like, Here! Here! I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see any kind of house. Where? I said. And then she sticks her arm out and points across the road to my left and says, there. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left at this little shack. And when I turned, she was gone. Just vanished. And the door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. There are literally dozens and dozens of stories just like these. Making Resurrection Mary the most seen ghost in the Windy City. Even though sightings and encounters have slacked off in the recent years, they still occur. Does Mary exist? If you ever find yourself along Archer Avenue, late at night, perhaps you can ask her. Don't be surprised if you find yourself magically enchanted by a ghostly beauty called Resurrection Mary. All right, folks, we hope you've enjoyed our telling of the legend of Resurrection Mary. The uh, Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast is an exploration into all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts. If you are interested in hearing more of our podcast, you can find us online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. We hope to see you soon. Hillbilly Youngins is intended for a younger listening audience. Hey, I'm Kristen, and Jerry and Tracy are my parents. Hi, I'm Dakota, and Jerry and Tracy are my grandparents. And And we we are the Hillbilly Youngins. Hello, friends. This is Kristen. (laughs) In Dakota. And you are listening to episode blank, because this is not an actual normal episode. (laughs) Out of all words of the dictionary, you chose blank. I didn't know what else to say. I panicked. (laughs) This is our Halloween special. Mwahaha. No. Speaking of Halloween, (laughs) um, it's going to be a little weird this year. I don't know how it's going to be in uh, the states around the world. Yeah, people are talking about just like throwing candy. Well, not throwing it, but 
putting candy on the sidewalks and like people driving around in their cars. Yeah, and then just like getting out and picking it up. That's stupid. They're saying that it is best to do a virtual costume party or better yet, just stay home and watch Halloween movies. What in the heck? And in Lexington, uh, they are saying that they want you to wear a mask and the Halloween masks are not not acceptable. Like you can wear the Halloween mask, but you still have to wear a mask underneath of that video call. No, this is if you were to actually go out it's so door ridiculous. to door trick or treating. I know it's just it's sad. I'm so over it. But the girls have got awesome costumes. So Dakota is going to be a what is it mystery masquerade. So if you guys don't know what that is, it's um you know like in the old times when people went to like balls and they had their masks, not like face masks but like the ones over their eyes yeah and they were really decorated pretty. in pretty sequins and you know feathers and whatnot i don't know if those were actually real things <laughs> they were well, it's in the cool. movies so it must be real <laughs> <laughs> anyway but that's what i'm gonna be like have pretty dressed or whatever it's gonna be beautiful and then addison it's gonna be she's the, always something morbid i'm always something like that because i was i've been a witch been a werewolf i've been a vampire i've been so many things i've never once been a disney princess i was Minnie mouse but that's oh, it oh i remember that that I was, was like also your, a pea in a pod that your <laughs> pea pod was your first halloween costume you were so cute it was like a little baby in a pea pod addison on the other hand last year she was um the guy from scream she had the scream mask with she a big bloody knife wear it, i don't think yeah, she got a little suffocated with the mask. And I'm sure a lot of Epic you guys Karen. saw the picture that I posted. I am not on Facebook anymore. I had to temporarily activate my Facebook. Tim. I know Tim had said something because he was like, oh, welcome to Facebook. It was temporary. I had to find, try to find some child care for the girls since they're, they are back here during the week now. And I activated it and then took the picture of Addison in her costume where she is the plague doctor and had to post it. It is so cool. She is the tiniest, most petite little thing. And she's got this hardcore plague doctor costume. It's so cool. It was just really, really really cool. It actually scared me because (laughs) she had put on the mask and the outfit and like I was in the bathroom and she was hiding, or she wasn't hiding, but she was like walking into your room or her room or something. And I just happened to walk out of the bathroom. <laughs> She's scared. She almost hit you with her beak. I would have pooped, but I already did that. <laughs> I'm sorry if I just like yelled in your all's ears. Oh my gosh, Dakota. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't remember. She's why. not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny but yeah they look their costumes are awesome this year this is the first year that i'm going to be able to go um, take them trick-or-treating since they were a little bitty uh, normally i'm on night shift and every year i've had to work yeah and this year Things is on. the first year and it's gonna be crap because <laughs> <laughs> it's during covid all right anyways let's get started today we're going to be doing a story on a place that is located in the very town that we just bought a house in. No. Yes. Frankfort, Kentucky. Oh, no. It is called Octagon Hall. Octagon 
We have to go. It is so cool. You got to look at is the pictures. Uh, girl, yes. This is our um, uh, Hillbilly um, Horror Story episode. I Hello. went to a haunted place, well, two times. It was a haunted hotel and we remember a haunted the, veterans the one, clinic. The one where you had to go use the toilet by yourself and you were scared to death. I also had to go back down the elevator by myself and stand <laughs> there for five minutes in this haunted place because there was a bar upstairs and like I wasn't allowed to go. Well, they didn't want you sneaking any beer. All right. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, Octagon Hall, located northeast Frankfurt, built in 1862. This was no ordinary house. It was a two-story brick red house, shaped like an octagon. Oh, and, it was seriously shaped like an octagon? Yes, and for those out there who are mathematically... Um, stupid. I'm just kidding. Stupid like I... <laughs> Um, an octagon has eight sides, for the record. You're not stupid. I, yes, I did you. not Google that. I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just probably just screamed in your all's ear. All right. Now, this fancy schmancy house was built by Andrew Jackson Caldwell for his family. However, it also served as a hospital for Confederate and federal soldiers, and the soldiers also used it to hide out. It's only two stories. How in the world could you do that? I don't know. It was obviously very cramped in there. The soldiers, a lot of them, they didn't survive. It was a hospital, right? People die. Right. Some were also buried on the property. Well, they probably were so cramped together that they got each other's diseases. That's true. That could have been it. Now, this is a really sad part. Um, There was a little girl. She's seven. Her name was Elizabeth. She was the daughter of Andrew, the guy that built the house. Mm -hmm. So she was, I can't remember what room she was in, but I guess she was standing next to a fire. Maybe a furnace. furnace something. Oh my gosh, we both said furnace. I know, Jinx, you owe me a coke. (laughs) Um, Her dress caught on fire and she burned to death. That's sad. She didn't stop, drop, and roll. (laughs) Anyways, you can visit this home today. And a lot of people do. I think we should. Many people experience supernatural things when that they are there. That is why I don't want to go. We going, girl. On the anniversary of Andrew's death, you can smell a stench of decay. <laughs> smells disgusting in here. Smells like raw meat. <laughs> or Coda Spam that she left in the refrigerator for oh like a gosh. month without spam the lid. Good. It's not even a month anyway. It was, and it was... God awful. Now, little Elizabeth, they see her as well, and they also see other kids playing about. In 2001, a family bought the property and wanted to turn it into a museum. Now, you know what happens when people buy old buildings and renovate them. This is an old building, you know. The spirits come to life because they're like, why you all up in my house? They renovated and the ghosts became quite active. Beds were found with body imprints. (laughs) Of course, shadow people. Doors opening and closing. There was voices caught on EVPs. One of which was by the grave of Elizabeth. And you can hear a child say, Mommy. Sad. Speaking, well, I just had a really, really weird thought. What? About this house. What? So, there were obviously a lot of kids there, and they obviously got in trouble a lot. So... How would they go in... 
the corner. Is that what you're going to say? Dang it. Yes, I bid you do it. And you go in that corner. You go in that corner. No, they would be like, uh, Jimmy, go in the corner. And he's like, Mom, which Which corner? (laughs) (laughs) You go to corner one. Um, You, ma'am, go to corner four. And don't you even think about looking at corner two. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a good one. Nice job, Coda. And there is a angry voice and he says leave that alone i guess he didn't like their decorating skills <laughs> there have been many apparitions that was not a very convincing laugh what? <laughs> <laughs> now there have been many apparitions in the home and outside basically these ghosts just don't care they are roaming around like i don't care if you see me what this is my house this is my corner <laughs> oh gosh that's so funny Anyways, that's all I've got on the Octagon Hall. Really? Yep, we got to wrap it up because this is a mini episode. But I hope you guys have a wonderful Halloweeny and get lots of candy. Make sure you check your candy because there's psychos out there. Open all your wrappers. Make sure there's no needles or anything. Oh my gosh. Hey, it's a thing. I'm telling you. If they give you apples, you pitch them. A nice addition to the segment is a really annoying crow in the background. Don't know if you can hear. <laughs> I know. But oh there's God. like, it's like, yeah, yeah. That's, well, I mean, crows, they're uh, part of the Halloween experience, right? Yes. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> I hope you guys have a great Halloween and a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Happy Halloween! That was a good impression. Yeah, that's uh, Happy Halloween from this side of the pond. I hope you're all enjoying yourselves. Right, as it's Halloween, we thought we'd share some ghost stories with you. Yes. Okay, the first one then. This one gives me goosebumps. I've never lived in a haunted house, but my mother did as a teen. Other houses in our street had strange things going on. A few homes away, there lived a man and his family and one night one of his daughters went to bed with a bad headache. The next day, she was dead. Unfortunately, she'd passed away from an aneurysm. After the funeral, the family went away to get their minds off the tragedy. And they asked my uncle, my mum's brother, to check on their pets while I was away. My mum and dad, who were dating at the time, went with my uncle to check on the pets. My mother went along because she'd heard there was a grand piano and she wanted to play it. After entering the house, my uncle and father headed to the basement to see the animals and my mother went to the grand piano on the ground floor. She was playing it for a little while when she felt something brush her ankles. She immediately thought it was the cat and must have been let out of the basement and had walked past her, so she just kept playing. But then she felt it again. She looked under the piano and saw nothing. When she started playing again, she felt hands clasp it around her legs and grab them tightly. She dashed to the basement door, called my uncle and father and waited for them. When they walked outside, my uncle could tell my mum was rattled and asked her what was wrong. She told him what had happened 
and he turned white. He told her the daughter who had died used to play a game with her father. When he played the piano, she would crawl underneath, grab his ankles and push his feet down on the pedals. Ooh. The boy with no eyes. One night, when I was ten, I was woken up by my bedroom door opening, followed by someone sitting on my bed. I felt my leg grazed and the bed sink under a person's weight, thinking it was my mum. I opened my eyes to see an eyeless boy. He had empty black eye sockets. About my age, sitting at the foot of my bed, he extended his hand, and it was in a little box. I was startled, but reached out. He pulled back. I reached again and said, Give it! Then I blinked. And when I reopened my eyes, he was gone. But the imprint of someone sitting on my bed was still present. Fast forward five years, my girlfriend came over to do homework. After she finished, she took a nap while she waited for her parents. When they arrived, I tried waking her up. She opened her eyes suddenly, looking up at a corner where the wall met the ceiling. She pointed there and went back to sleep. I shook her again. She came to full consciousness, and I explained what she'd done. She said, up on the wall, I saw a little boy with no eyes. He was there in a Spider-Man pose, staring at me. I freaked out and told her my story about the same kid. Now fast forward another five years... I was with the same girlfriend, and we had two, uh, we had a two-year-old. We were living in my parents' house in my old room. My daughter started waking up at the same time every night, and she'd talk. After a while, I noticed she had almost the same conversation every night. I playfully asked her once whom she was talking to. She said, It's a little boy. He's nice. He's lost and looking for, for his mummy. My daughter's nightly conversations continued until we got our own place later that year. Mm. It's always creepy when it's kids, isn't it? <clears throat> always is. The Unseen Patient The ambulance company that I used to work for had a haunted ambulance. Rig number 12. A lot of EMTs had stories about it. But I never put too much stock into the paranormal stuff. That is, until I had my own experience with Rig 12. My partner and I were working in a rural community about 3am. And it was pitch dark and completely quiet. We were both dozing off. I was in the driver's seat and she was in the passenger's seat. I woke up to a muffled voice and I thought it was my partner talking. I told her I was trying to sleep and close my eyes. I distinctly heard a male voice say, Oh my God, I'm dying, followed by a few seconds of heavy breathing. My partner and I sat up straight and looked into the back of the patient compartment where the sound of the voice had come from. Things were quiet for a couple of seconds, and then we heard the click of an oxygen bottle regulator and a hiss as if it was leaking. I turned on the lights and we ran out of the rig. 
I thought a transient might have climbed in while he was asleep. So we opened the rear doors, but there was no one there. I checked the oxygen bottle and neither of them were open. We didn't sleep much after that. Mm-hmm. The impish ghost. My neighbour Diane and I had a playful poltergeist for years, and we called it Billy. I'd come home and find something put in a weird place. Milk in a cupboard, toilet paper in a fridge, laundry detergent in a bathtub. Diane once called to ask if Billy had been around because she couldn't find a gallon of milk. We finally found it outside on her back steps. And sugar, damn sugar, every morning my sugar bowl was empty. Well, I had enough. I'd point to Diane's home and yell, go see Diane. Within five minutes, I'd get a call from her and she'd say thanks a lot because he'd gone and pulled some shenanigans at her place again. This occurred for the entire two years that we lived there. No one believed us, not even our husbands. My mother thought someone was stealing from us when we were sleeping or out of the house. My sister believed something was going on, but she didn't know of that. I still can't explain any of it. Can't still. Mm. Well, there you go. There's a few little ghost stories to tide you over till next Halloween. Um, yep, so thank you very much for listening to us. We are Realm of the Supernatural podcast and have a happy Halloween, everybody at Hillbilly Horror Stories. Happy Halloween! society something you are listening to serial spirits the podcast My name is Brendan Shea. And I'm Annie Weebs. And we're the hosts of the Serial Spirits Podcast. Serial Spirits Podcast is a mashup of true crime, paranormal, conspiracy theories, and we're lucky enough to have worked with Jerry and Tracy in the past, and they ask us to come back and give them a little something for their Halloween special this year. So what we're giving you guys is a preview of our upcoming series releasing on Halloween called I Am Cold. The story of Endred. 
What you're about to hear is not a news broadcast, but seriously, guys, we're not Unsolved Mysteries. Our podcast can be found on all the platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you subscribe. So here's a preview of our upcoming series. Enjoy. November 2nd, 1966. As the rain pelted against a red-paneled Ford Econovan, Woodrow Durenberger gripped the steering wheel firmly as he headed home down I-77, just south of Marietta, Ohio. Woody heard a loud crash as one of his sewing machines he had loaded in his van toppled over, causing him to turn the dome light on and turn around. It was at this moment that he noticed a car traveling at a high rate of speed. As it passed him, he noticed that chasing this car was, as he described, a spaceship. The object began to slow down, and Woody, afraid of hitting it, pulled over to the side of the road. The object turned and blocked the Ford van, and as it came to a stop, it seemed to hover as if gravity had no effect on it. Just as this moment began to come into full realization for Woody, a hatch suddenly opened and a man stepped out of the object. With a rush, the object suddenly shot back up into the night sky and Woody sat watching in amazement as the man approached his van. cold story is fascinating because it's kind of uh, opened up the gateway per se uh, for all sorts of possibilities. He is allegedly an alien who doesn't look at all like an alien in, in terms of the common context or, or the grays that most people think of. We're not alone in this world and anybody who thinks that planet Earth, that this is the only this is the only life force. They're wrong. Tanya remembered unknown men arriving at their house in the days after her father's encounter with Indrid. As a child, she believed they were clergy from the local church. Now, she actually believes they may have been men in black. Where do you think Indrid Cole is now? I don't want to go and say that he's dead. It's possible that he did die in a crash. It gets to a point, just like witness, you know, any sort of witness, you have to sort of say, you know, what's the reality of what occurred here? Humanoids are not very nice people, and they were chasing the humanoids out of the galaxy and away from Earth. Because when I was younger, my dad told me stories about how humanoids would come down to Earth, and they kind of, you know. Whatever they wanted, they took. So, Indrid was kind of the uh, security, so to speak, to make sure the humanoids stayed, stayed away. The story that we're dealing with, as far as like coming right. from the horse's mouth itself, because she was there, she was present when her dad came home initially and had his first encounter. And like I said, there was somebody on the highway who came forward and said, 
yes, I saw Woody talking to this man on the side of the road. I didn't stop, but I seen, you know, he did, somebody did stop with this weird suit on and was talking to this guy. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Tracy. This is Tammy Merhev Chavez and Bryce Mitchell Williams of Holly Weird Paranormal Podcast. And here are our creepy tales that we would love to share with you and your audience. So I guess we could start with mine since mine happened quite recently. And um, let's just say that I got a chance to stay in one of the most haunted rooms at the infamous Cosmopolitan Hotel in Old Town, San Diego. So, um, two weeks ago, I was invited by Witches Brew LA and Zachariah the Witch, who we've had on our podcast. And um, they had uh, written and produced this interactive haunted experience that they wanted to perform and put up at the Cosmopolitan Hotel using the hotel as its own stage and they had booked the hotel for three whole days and the show itself was sold out for all three days which was really awesome and a little backstory of the cosmopolitan hotel in old town san diego is this it's one of the oldest hotels in southern california and old town san diego is one of the oldest towns in southern california And it also hosts one of the most haunted houses, which is the Whaley House, which is located literally right around the corner from the Cosmopolitan Hotel. The entire town of Old Town San Diego is uh, highly active with many active locations, Cosmopolitan Hotel definitely being one of them. The hotel itself is almost 150 years old, and the backstory is is that it was built by a politician and also socialite Juan Bandini, and it was originally a one-story adobe, and by 1869, it was sold to another family, the Seelys, and they turned it into a hotel. They added the second level. They also had a son. The Seelys had a son who committed suicide on the property, and that's the only death that I know that happened on the property. But the hotel had witnessed, apparently, the beheading of a bandit by the name of Juan or Joaquim Marietta. So I had the opportunity to stay at this hotel all of a sudden. Originally, the hotel was booked all the rooms were booked and i get a call from zachariah the witch and he says hey you want to come down to old tan san diego and stay the night sunday through monday and possibly interview us and record the show for your podcast and i said absolutely he said great wonderful because we have this room that just opened up and it's one of the most haunted rooms in the hotel and uh i said i'm game he said great you also want to know too that the couple that was originally supposed to stay there left abruptly they had originally booked the room for three days it was this couple from arizona they checked in on friday evening and they checked out saturday at 3 a.m they just dipped out of nowhere they dropped the keys off in the um Dropbox checkout 
area of the hotel and they just left. When Dean, the manager of the hotel, contacted them, they told Dean, we had to leave that room because we were awoken by this Spanish woman who was whispering in our ears while we were sleeping and it freaked us out and we were not going to stay another minute in that room. Wonderful. So I was um, pretty much asked to stay in this haunted room and document my experiences and my experiences with their interactive show called Ghosts of the Past. Well, I check in on Sunday, I get into my room Um, It's a nice room. It's a little heavy, but I'm not going to let my nerves get the best of me. And I was just going to enter, you know, this hotel and this experience with an open mind. And so I, you know, go ahead and I interview the cast of the show. I do the ghost tour and I retire for bed. So it's 1.30 in the morning. I'm getting ready for bed. And I already noticed that the lights are flickering in this room. Now, a little backstory of this specific hotel room that I'm staying in. It's called Room 11, and it's the Isadora Room. Isadora being one of the daughters of Juan Bandini. However, Isadora did not die in the hotel. She grew old and died elsewhere. But people believe that her spirit haunts this room for some reason. Because they've seen um, an image or a figure of a woman around the room. She's kind of like a middle-aged older woman that resembles Isadora. Uh, She also likes to mess around with the lights, turning them on and off, flickering the lights, opening and closing the bathroom door, and even, you guessed it, talking to you in your sleep. So by 1.30, I had taken a shower, and I dozed off to some shows playing on my tablet. And out of nowhere, I wake up at 4.15 in the morning to what felt like pressure and ringing in my ears. And the sensation is a sensation that, I, that one feels whenever you're taking off in an airplane. And I just shot up in bed and I sat there and I'm like, what is this? And it just, the energy in the room was completely different at that time. It just felt very, very heavy pressurized for some reason. I felt very anxious out of nowhere. And I look at the at the door, the entrance of the room, and I notice the shadow shoot from the right side of the door to the opposite end of the room. I tell you, I froze. I froze in bed and I took a deep breath and I said, Isadora, if that's you, please let me sleep. Thank you for letting me know you're here but you literally just mess with my REM right now. (laughs) And I just laid back down. I left the light on the nightstand on because there was just no way I was going to sleep in that room with that shadow in the dark. And I just dozed off within an hour. And by 9 a.m. I woke back up and um, the room felt different. The air was definitely lighter, and that was pretty much my experience in the Isadora suite. Now here's Bryce's story of um, something that is of the extraterrestrial beings. I was driving home with my sister in the car, so she can verify, so tweet her, live tweet her to make sure this is true. And to get to our house, we lived pretty far in the country. And to get from our high school uh, to our house, you had to cross a set of railroad tracks and then another mile and then another set of railroad tracks and then 
our house was like a mile from, so it was track, mile, track, mile house. We had passed the first track and we're driving and over the second track, there's a house right there with these very large pine trees. And many times people in their cars would get hit by trains because it was really difficult to see. The first track you could just go over. It was clear, you would see a train coming for miles, it was fine. The second one you really had to slow down look make sure that there wasn't a train coming and that you just couldn't see and it was pretty late in the evening probably at least 10 um i think we were coming home from some kind of rehearsal and as i had slowed down and we were going across the track and it was completely dark and then in the next second it was completely light and my first instinct was to swerve the car because I thought we were getting hit by a train. And I saw the light and it was it was all around because I looked to my sister first because I swerved to the left and looked to the right because that's the direction that the light sort of appeared. And I looked at my sister and I was so sure we were getting hit by a train. And then my brain started doing that thing where it's receiving input so quickly that it's trying to catch up with what's happening. And so I realize that it's not that she's backlit. It's as if it turned daylight. I can see her face. It's everywhere. And it's like my brain is trying to process the fact that the light is all around. And so I, you know, I swerve and I get across the tracks and right away, are you okay? Are you okay? And she just goes, what was that? Because then it goes, pitch black the car died and it's pitch black and that's when i my brain starts like catching up and i realize like it literally was as if someone had turned the sun on just in our vicinity and then shut everything off i don't know what happened start the car it starts up we drive home i thought we were dying because it was that instantaneous that we were like the trains it's hitting us that in and of itself weird but not crazy Two nights later, I had dropped a friend off at her house. And the way that her neighborhood was, you had to cross the same track. I dropped her off. I'm coming back. I'm getting ready to go across the tracks. And I'm getting ready to turn left back towards my house. And I'm sitting there. And I look to the left. And there is a pair of... I can't even explain it. But there is a person essentially, standing about 10 feet to my left in the dark. And I had started to pull to the left, and it it jarred me so much that I swerved my car, and the light catches, and the eyes hyper-reflect. And again, car dies. And I, like, speed home, and I'm, like, hysterical. Welcome to We Drink and We Know Things, a weekly podcast doused in alcohol and lit with knowledge. Clinkies! Hello. Hello. What up, everybody? 
I'm Andrea. And I'm Tom. And we are We Drink and We Know Things. Me, me, me. The podcast, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> happy Halloween. Yes, happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. So we are a husband and wife podcast. Yep. We cover all kinds of things like... Murder. True crime. Cryptids. Conspiracy theories. All kinds of odd uh, things. Haunted stuff. You know, Real life stories of we, just crazy things that have happened. Yeah, we really do. We just go all over the spectrum there. And we uh, try to keep it light, try to make it somewhat funny. We keep as it best light as even we in can. the darkest times. I'll <laughs> delete that because that was super cheesy. Uh, we also do things like uh, the glitches in the Matrix. Yes. And creepypastas. Let's not meet. Let's not meet. And if you're not familiar with those, go check out our feed wherever yeah. you listen to podcasts. Again, we are We Drink and We Know Things. The podcast. So I believe this evening we're going to be telling you about some stories uh, that tell the stories about stories. <laughs> uh, crimes on Halloween. Yeah. This is Bad like things on Halloween. Stuff that happened on Halloween. We're, we're going to go be brief with it, you know? Like yeah. these are going to be like, pro- some of these might be really big crimes that we would probably maybe go more in depth that, on that our podcast. Too. Some of these are famous I was looking yeah. through. You should go first though because you're, you're better than, at this than me. I'm better at it than you? Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Happy wife, happy life, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so the first one we have, it happens on Chicago Southside in 2011. 55-year-old Liddell Peoples blamed his girlfriend for stealing his bag of Halloween treats. Don't you steal my treats. An argument ensued, and 49-year-old Maria Adams threw a plate at Peoples' head. Those are our treats! Which struck him above the eye and caused a gash. Ouch. Peoples then grabbed a knife and stabbed her multiple times, killing okay. her. So, yeah, that's the man stabs <laughs> girlfriend to death over missing bag of Halloween candy. Well, they had the full-size Hershey chocolates in I there. I mean, yikes. There were some ho-hos. There was Twinkies. You wouldn't even believe it. Okay. Uh, father poisons his son with Halloween candy. This one's the famous one. Right? I actually covered this on one of the episodes. Full, I like, did the full big story nice. on one of our episodes. Go find it. Yeah. People, so I don't know when, I don't know what episode it is. <laughs> no, I was telling, you know. Someone, someone go for it. <laughs> uh, people purposely poisoning strangers. There was too many peas. That didn't need to be that way. <laughs> people purposely poisoning strangers. Halloween candy is mostly the stuff of urban legend. But this 1974 case in Deer Park, Texas, involves a father who laced his son's pixie sticks with cyanide with the intent to kill him so he could collect on an insurance policy. Yeah, yeah. Christ. The father, Ronald Clark O'Brien, had fallen deeply into debt, so he decided to claw his way out of his self-inflicted money hole by murdering his own son. Yikes. He purchased potassium cyanide, sprinkling it inside of five pixie stick straws, crudely stapled them all shut, and then handed them out to his son, daughter, and three other neighborhood kids yeah, to avoid up, suspicion. Like, gave it out to, like, multiple kids, not just his own. What just a piece to make of it look shit. like he... His plot was to kill them all and him. blame a neighbor. Yeah. After trick-or-treating, O'Brien's 11-year-old son, Timothy, apparently at his father's urging, swallowed the pixie stick powder and complained that it tasted bitter. He soon began vomiting uncontrollably and was dead before he reached the hospital. So sad. O'Brien was found guilty of murder and died via lethal injection. He subsequently earned the uh, subroquet, uh, the Candyman, and the Man Who Killed Halloween. Yeah, that's like one of the big stories that caused like the whole like... Check, Check your kid's, your kids. candy yeah. for poison, even though Only he actually... if you're the one that gave it to the kid, you yeah, weird parents. I know. Jeez. Yuck. Okay. A uh, man confronts kids who egged his car and gets shot. Okay. Oof. 
while driving his girlfriend and her son home through the notoriously dangerous South Bronx on Halloween in 1998, 21-year-old computer programmer Carl Jackson had his car egged by a group of local ne'er-do-wells. I think you nailed that. I don't even know what that is, but you nailed it. (laughs) Jackson stepped out of the car to confront them and got back in the car after a brief argument. One of the youths got into a car to pursue Jackson. They caught up with him a few bucks later and shot him dead in the head. Oh, my gosh. I don't want to make light that you just rhymed, but that's fucking crazy. Yeah. Like, you guys, it's not so serious. It's not. That's fucked up. Are we allowed to cuss on Jerry's show? Oh. Yeah. Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Seven-year-old boy shot to death while trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. Seven-year-old Tony Bagley was wearing a skeleton costume and trick-or-treating with his sister, mother, and aunt on early Halloween night in 1994. Oh, yeah. Tom likes to say a year's really freaking That's how they're supposed weird. to be said. Look it up. It's fin- it's, look it up in an encyclopedia. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, in 1994, on the north side of Las Vegas, a man in a hooded sweatsuit leaped out of nowhere and fired at the family before hopping in a getaway car, which peeled away with its lights off. Bullets hit Tony's sister in the liver and his aunt in the leg and his mother in the chest, but they all survived. Tony did not. His biological father, who who reportedly never commented to the police on Tony's death, was arrested a few years later for an unrelated street shooting. Oh, he did it. He did it. Oh, he did it. Tony's murder remains unsolved. (laughs) I bet he did it. He did it. He totally did it. Because, I mean, that's pretty similar... Like good input. MO. Shut up. <laughs> uh, I was trying to read the next thing, but also trying to comment at the same time. We're good at banter. If you haven't, I mean, tune in. We got a lot of We banter. also drink and curse. So if that's not your thing, sorry. Ooh, sorry if you're listening to this with the kitties. <laughs> well, I think our content's not very appropriate for kids anyway. Uh, okay, man arrests. And that's not the word at all. Words are hard. Words are hard. Man answers front door on Halloween and is shot. Back in 1957, Los Angeles resident Peter Fabiano was having marriage problems with his wife, Betty, that led to her briefly leaving their house and shacking up with a woman named Joan Rebel. Oh, she's a rebel. After Peter and Betty reconciled and she moved back in with him, Rebel became consumed with jealousy. She conspired with another woman, Goldine Pizer. To murder Fabiano on Halloween, reasoning that it was the best night of the year to wear a mask without engendering suspicion. Nailed it. Rebel put together a costume for Pizer consisting of red gloves, face paint, and a mask. The pair sat for two hours outside Fabiano residence on Halloween night, waiting for the house's bedroom lights to be turned off. When the lights went off, Pizer walked up to the house and rang the doorbell. Fabiano answered, probably anticipating a late-night trick-or-treater. Pizer shot him dead in the chest with a thirty-eight caliber handgun. Jeez. Ooh. Oh, that's it? Yeah. That sucks. All right. Man, just to, like, go think you're, like, getting a trick-or-treater and you're like, oh, they've got a fake gun. These guys are out late. They're private teenagers. Yeah. Okay, they're out here for a little... Oh! I'll give it to them. Buddies. <laughs> Uh, trick-or-treaters knock on man's door, and he blasts them with an AK-47. Wow, as you going to be probably pretty similar. Uh, on Halloween night, 2008, convicted drug dealer Quentin Patrick of Sumter, South Carolina, heard a knock on his door. 
assuming it was rival gang members, oh. he grabbed his fully automatic AK-47 and blasted at least 29 bullets through the front door at Dude, them. maybe ju- it's Halloween. It's literally Halloween. Maybe check the peephole. 11 of those bullets hit a 12-year-old trick-or-treater. 11? Yes. Uh, TJ Derisaw killing him. TJ's father and younger brother were also hit, but survived. Oh, man. That's depressing. Listen, you know, don't shoot people when they knock on your door on Halloween. Sheesh. Um, Okay, this one's pretty rough. Uh, A preacher strangled a woman to death and then dresses her son up for Halloween. What? Okay. Um, although he'd previously served separate prison sentences for stabbing one mur- mur- woman and murdering another, wow, John D. White was paroled and became the pastor of a small Michigan church. Stop That's it. not how those things are supposed to That's work. That's not really, I mean, I get that, like, the Lord forgives, but, Jeez. like, there should be a statute. Living in a trailer park, he became romantically involved with a female resident a few trailers down and would frequently babysit the woman's three-year-old grandson. Oh, it was a baby. On Halloween night 2012, wow, this was 2012, this guy I got out yeah. of that? While the three-year-old boy was in the trailer, White knocked the boy's mother out with a rubber mallet and strangled her to death with a plastic zip tie. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> he stuffed her in a garbage bag and dumped her in the woods. Then he returned to the trailer and dressed the boy in a Halloween costume where the boy's father came to pick him up. Jeez. After being arrested for murder, White told police his crime was part of a lingering fantasy to have sex with a corpse. Stop. But that he'd, quote unquote, forgot whether or not he completed that act. And with that note, thanks so much for listening to We Drink and We Know Things. What a thing to forget (laughs) whether you did or not. Oh my god. That's a fine note to that's a fine note to end this on. You think I think you think we're gonna end it on that one? Yeah, I think so. Alright. Well, again, we are we drink and we know things. Come hang out. We're not always so morbid. <laughs> and, and if you hear the little chirping of our, our dogs, they're actually our studio assistants telling us <laughs> to stop talking. <laughs> but yeah, uh you can email us at we drink and we know things podcast at Gmail if you've got any suggestions. Follow or us on all the social like medias. Uh, and once again, thanks so much for Hillbilly Horror Stories for having us on. Yes. For our, this, like, I think uh, this is like the third time we've done this. Yes. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. And can you get a little clinkies? Oh, we'll give it a go. I got a glass. Now, here we go. Oh, I've got a plastic glass. Well, ah, oh, clinkies. There it is. <laughs> happy Halloween. Bye. have your attention please we are controlling transmission there is nothing wrong the horror chronicles what's up everybody i'm ryan i'm bradley and i'm jt from the horror chronicles podcast and we want to wish jerry and tracy a very happy but creepy halloween that's right guys on horror chronicles podcast guys we talk about you know everything that's horror related horror movies the paranormal cryptids everything that goes bump in the night however tonight for Jerry and Tracy's Halloween special, we're going to tell some personal stories of ours uh, that's happened to us. So uh, 
let's let uh, JT kind of start this show off here. All right. Well, I'm going to start this off with kind of a weird story. Um, I don't know if it's too paranormal or whatever, but... Uh, Everything about you is weird. So this yeah, <laughs> it is, uh, is kind of creepy and strange at the same time. So, unfortunately, sad tale, my brother-in-law passed away at a very early age. He was only 44. He passed away in 2008, and he was one of those kind of guys that took care of everything around the house and, you know, made sure everything was working proper and, and like everything. The caretaker. And, and he passed away suddenly at the age of 44, and... While we were getting ready for the funeral, you know, my sister, of course, was all distraught. They had been married for 20-something years, you know, at this point. They had two small children. Pretty sad deal, you know. And so my brother-in-law was ex-military, and he always wanted to be buried at, at Jefferson Barracks Cemetery, which, if you guys don't know, is a military uh, burial ground in, mm-hmm. in South County, Missouri. So my sister, knowing this, she she contacted Jefferson Barracks Cemetery and uh said, you know, my husband just passed away. I need to make arrangements for him to be buried here. And uh, the guy was like, okay, you know, and he's, he's trying to take care of her. And as he's, uh, as he's talking to her, he's like, well, wait a minute, ma'am. And she's like, what, what's wrong? He was just here two weeks ago, and he made all the arrangements and paid for everything. Damn, my head's And on. she was like, what? Which is very strange, because he was a fairly healthy guy, you know. That being said... They're trying to get ready for the funeral. My sister is in the house with her best friend. Her best friend's trying to help her out. And they're trying to figure out what to bury him in. And uh, her best friend is in the closet kind of looking through some of his clothes and stuff. And she she, uh, sees a, a coat hanger in the back of the closet with plastic wrap over it. And she pulls it out and she says, what about this? It's a brand new suit he had just bought a week prior. Well, it gets even weirder. Because he was really big into all kinds of stuff. He was big into hunting and fishing and uh, just all kinds of stuff. He was he was one of those big. He was a manly man, you know. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he really liked fish and aquariums and stuff. So he had this big aquarium in the house. Well, my sister was all freaking out. Oh my God, what are we gonna do? You know, I I don't know how to take care of this thing. What, you know, it, uh, who's gonna teach me how to run this aquarium and clean it and all this stuff? The morning of the funeral, we all wake up, go out in the living room. All the fish are dead in the, the aquarium. <laughs> what the No fuck? kidding. Wow. wow that's no crazy, kidding. Man. So anyway, we, we make it through the funeral. And uh, couple he, he passed away in July. So around the end of August, my sister, they had a big above-ground swimming pool in the backyard. She was trying to figure out, okay, I've got to close the swimming pool for the year. You know, I don't know how to do it. I'm going to have to pay somebody to do it. A couple of weeks later. Were all the fish in the swimming pool dead too? No. A couple of weeks later, there was a creek behind their house. Yeah. Big flood. Took out the swimming pool. <laughs> totally gone. Caretakers. At it again. Uh, <laughs> Take care of business. Very strange. Yeah. So shortly after that, my, uh, my wife had been running to St. Louis and kind of helping my sister take care of stuff. And... As she was running to St. Louis, I was having to come back home and stay to go to work and everything. And anyway, I was at home one weekend by myself. My wife was in in the city with with my sister. Went to bed one night, and I had this weird dream. When you walk out of my bedroom door, if you look to your left, there's a staircase that goes to the second floor. Mm -hmm. So I I go to bed one night, 
and I have this dream that I walk out the bedroom door, look up the staircase, and there's my brother-in-law standing about three-quarters of the way up the staircase, and he's waving me, motioning me to come up the staircase. It was like a, a, a lucid dream that you remember everything? Yes, nice. every single thing. And what was so bizarre about that is it woke me up, and most of the time my dreams won't wake me up, you know, but I was wide awake. Well, I went back to sleep and ended up having the same dream again, the exact same thing. I had that dream that night three times. The third time I had that dream, I actually got out of bed, walked to my bedroom door, and had my hand on the door handle, and I thought to myself, what am I going to do if I walk out the door and he's standing on the staircase? I'm going to shit my pants. Yeah, that's, that's collateral damage. You know, you so I stood there for the longest time and never did walk out the door to see what he was, hmm. see what he was wanting. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. That yeah. sounds like unfinished business, and I, I think there's going to be yeah. a part two to this eventually. Yeah, eventually. Well, and there's more to that story too, guys. And if you want yeah. to check that out, check out the Horror Chronicles podcast, guys. Get over and check it out. So, yeah, Bradley, what yes. you got for us? Well, uh, just like what you were saying, uh, but in, instead of future, it's it's previous. Uh, we went on a couple of episodes. Uh, I think it was a two part episode where uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about the house and the house behind my house. Uh, well, there has been newer stuff happened since then. Ooh, goody. Oh, goody! I haven't heard this nice. yet. Goody, goody, goody! Yes, uh, you guys actually haven't had it, uh, heard it at all. Unfortunately, I hear it about one thirty in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. One night here recently, probably three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that. I was sleeping on my couch. I fell asleep watching Harry Potter, something like that. I woke up at Harry Palmer. It was exactly twelve forty-six and, and thirty-eight seconds. Well, I don't know about the, the seconds uh, yeah, part, yeah, but I it was you. it was exactly twelve forty-six yeah. because the fire alarms were going off. Oh, shit. I was dead sleep. Like I was, I was out. There was no waking me up except for the fire alarms. I woke up to the fire alarms. Now, that wouldn't have been so bad because the fire alarms have went off before. You know, no big deal, nothing like this. But about two weeks before that, I'd almost set my house on fire. So that that kind of, <laughs> you know, I was trying to fry some squash up. So I I, I had fire fresh in my memory already. So it was kind of like a mixed PS, uh, PTSD plus. It was actually freaking strange. Because 1246, these fire alarms go off. Wake me up. And I'm like, okay, not a big deal. Sometimes they do that, not like that. Because every fire alarm in the house went off at the same time. Only did a half cycle. Like, didn't do the full alarm. Mm -hmm. Only did a half cycle, and they all shut off at the same time. Now, if you were to get a fire in there or have any kind of smoke or whatever, one fire alarm goes off for a full cycle first, and then the rest of them go off. So you know where the fire is if you're already up. Right. These, all of them, at the same time, go off. So there had to have been some sort of electronic signal to tell them to go off because they're all wireless. They're not connected right. to any, anything at all. So there had to have been an interference in the, in the signal that they receive to make them go off. Now, a signal doesn't make them shut off. They just run out. They, yeah. Whenever the smoke's gone, right. they just shut off. Run through a cycle. So for them to do a half cycle, like mid-fire mid alarm, they just all shut off at the same time. Okay. Strange. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to go to bed now. There's no fire. There's no nothing. It's just, okay, freak accident. Until exactly 30 minutes on the dot. 30 minutes on the dot. One sixteen. They go off for a half cycle again. 30 minutes on the dot. Wow. Uh, we just recently renovated the house, uh, not necessarily renovated, but uh, we put a floor in. You know, uh, We swapped all the lights to LED because we did mm-hmm. have that flickering problem I was telling right. you about before. Mm-hmm. That didn't fix it. 
the flickering problem still there, and I've never seen an LED bulb flicker. No big deal. Okay. All right. That works. Maybe it's wiring. Okay. Great. Except for the battery-powered lights, that the touch lights that we put underneath mm-hmm. the cabinets, they flickered too, and they would come on randomly. Mm. We eventually got rid of those. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm over wow. that. Time to burn the house down. Time to burn. I tried. <laughs> I tried. I really did try. And uh, to get into full detail about the whole story behind this house, you're, you're really going to have to check out the previous episode where we yeah. did talk about this because it's, it's really in-depth. Uh, yeah, it take guys. a little bit longer than what we have. Yeah, so this is the kind of conversations we have on our podcast, guys. Um, we also talk about horror movies. We talk about cryptids, you know, Bigfoot, Chupacabra, all that fun stuff. Chupacabra. UFOs. And aliens. Oh, yeah, the aliens. But, yeah, guys, so if you want to have a good time and hear about some creepy stuff, Jump on over to the Horror Chronicles podcast and uh, give it a listen and let us know what you think about it. But uh, we want to thank Jerry and Tracy for inviting us on here. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Giving us a chance to talk to you guys, and um, we hope to uh, hear from you soon. Until next time, keep, keep it creepy. creepy. All right, guys, that wraps up our third annual Halloween episode. 15 podcasts all together. I hope you enjoyed it. Wasn't that the greatest thing ever? Yeah, and if, you, if you've if you listened to some of those podcasts and subscribed, that's awesome. If you haven't, go subscribe to them. That was just a small sample of what you get with the regular shows. Yes, and thank you guys for doing this so much. We enjoy this time of year, especially, and, you know, to have our family podcasters come and, you know, share their stories and things, that means a whole lot to us. Yeah, we try to mix it up every year and have some ones that you, you've heard before, but also have some new ones mm-hmm. to expose you to some of the podcast out there that are maybe just getting started out or or they uh, haven't really had the exposure that they they need to uh, to get their name out there so yeah so woohoo enjoy all right guys we'll talk to you later